Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is Ryan Tansom, your host. Today's guest name is Scott Miller. Scott is a interesting individual because he's got such a dynamic past. I absolutely love it. He's a serial entrepreneur, so he's owned a couple, owned a couple of his own companies. He also was the CFO of a large manufacturing firm, and he was the point man and the trustee while they decided to sell to an ESOP. He also is a CPA, and he's an author and speaker, so very dynamic individual, and currently he's the owner of ESI, which specializes in valuations, consulting, and ESOP exit options. Our conversation specifically zeroes in on valuations, net proceeds, the different mechanical things that you can do to affect the net proceeds. And the goal and takeaway of this episode is to level the playing fields between you, the buyer, and the potential seller, because this is a game. Everything's negotiable once it's on the table. So listen in. Hopefully you gather some gold nuggets that could affect your situation down the road. And without further ado, here is the interview with Scott Miller. Good morning, Scott. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. How are you doing, Ryan? Doing good. Thank you very much for coming on the Life After Business podcast. Appreciate that. Appreciate the invitation. I am uh, I'm pretty excited for our conversation today because... Um, we had met at the exit planning uh, training and you had given a couple of presentations and you were easily the most memorable because of <laughs> the hats and the little, the way that you uh, put some spunk into the topics that we were talking about. So for the sake of our listeners, can you give them a little bit of a backdrop on where you came from, a little bit about your, your past experience and where you are today? Well, thanks for the uh, easy tie-in here. I am a serial entrepreneur. Um, I've been a business owner. <clears throat> I've started businesses. <clears throat> and a long time ago, I actually became professionally accredited. I am a CPA and logged a few years in public accounting. But that wasn't a long-term goal. And so I was with them for a very short period of time <clears throat> and then went into industry. So I've been an owner in several closely held firms. Um, for today's purposes, one of the high watermarks before founding the firm Enterprise Services, I was a CFO for a large manufacturing firm that had an employee stock ownership plan, an ESOP. And the company quickly migrated to world-class manufacturing, and that's one of the you know, core aspects to you know, success as an entrepreneur, uh, that being the consulting as it relates to companies considering or companies that have ESOPs. So um, I focused on founding enterprise services, and today we've grown within a niche market to one of the largest, you know, consulting firms in this in this niche. So, serial so entrepreneur at its at its finest, right? <laughs> Well, yeah, there's always a, you know, you're not hearing about the missteps. <laughs> <laughs> it's all, well, you get to give the perfect little cliff notes, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, knowing that most entrepreneurs misstep two or three times or more before they finally, you know, 
figure some things out and ride a winner for a while. Well, and what and why I'm excited to have you on and have this conversation is because we've both been in the driver's seat. We've both been a business owner and had to write the checks for payroll and you know, with your progression through owning companies and then to getting to where you are today, I think you know what I noticed in the the conversations that we had had in the training was you're able to distill this down into a very practical, easy to listen to um, style. So, you know, some of the topics that I want to touch on today are because of um, your expertise is really business valuation, and as as owners are looking into their company, and you know, we've a lot of people have seen the stats, and they a lot of business owners don't know the actual value of their company to a potential buyer. So can you give us a little bit of a background on valuations? What are some of the different types of it, uh, types of valuations that business owners can be uh, looking for? Well, certainly. And the world of valuation can be rather confusing because it's a world where, in many cases, there's a formal valuation analysis for gifts, estates, for ESOPs, or even for litigation, where there is a formal report that is subject to review or even subject to challenge under adversarial proceedings. And many valuation professionals are trained, and they have lots of credentials. Uh, They're trained to these exacting standards. Well, in most cases, you know, that's the world of theory, not the real world of actual transactions and how things get done. Then when we look at, you know, the world of most business owners, they're not in the world of theory. They really, (laughs) remarkably enough, right? (laughs) Right. And then the question is, you know, the company that many cases they've spent a career building is that going to be an attractive investment for you know a next owner, either inside buyers like uh, family members, key employees, or maybe even an ESOP, or to a third party, a competitor, um, private equity firm, uh, a key supplier. <clears throat> so how does you know a arm's length buyer look at the value of the company? Most business owners would like to think there's an easy book. There's a way to acquire or purchase or at least derive some sort of value for the company. And it's far more complex than that. In the world, the real world, things are negotiated. So the bad one-liner in class is that (laughs) you tell me the price and I'll tell you the terms. (laughs) So... The value of a company is probably going to be, you know, really, you know, integrally and uh, involved with what are the terms. Uh, Very few companies are ever going to transact all cash. Every once in a while, there's some statistical outlier, but does not happen very often. So there's, you know, there's a an overall consideration or approximate price, but then. The terms. How is that price going to be realized? Um, there can be all kinds of contingencies. There can be an earnout. There's a rather arbitrary holdback or an escrow account. There can be seller financing, uh, again, which is you know hidden as you know contingent payment. There can be management agreements or uh, employment agreements, 
and all that goes into you know this cauldron that's gur- gurgling and bubbling as to <laughs> proceeds to the owner. And then, not only that, then it gets far more complex because in this cauldron of various resources, certain of the aspects are taxed at much different rates. So, unfortunately, business owners would like to have a rather simple answer, and the fact is is that it's probably going to be exceedingly complex based on uh, contingencies, tax rates, how the thing is going to be structured, how much cash is up front, and that's something that most business owners really can't appreciate because they haven't gone through the sale process very often, in some cases, selling their baby, you know, the company that they founded. This is the first time they've really had to look hard at this transition process. Yeah, and, and you touched on so many uh, crucial parts, Scott, and I think one concept but, that I'm... But, at- by the way, by making it complex, that's a sign of a good advisor. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we, we, we got billable hours on, on the <laughs> forefront, right? <laughs> Uh, but you know, I, 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 in all, in all seriousness is, you know, what, one of the concepts that you touched on that I really want to hit home for the listeners is the difference between a valuation and net proceeds are significantly different. And the road to get to net proceeds is long and windy, but that's where everything's negotiable, right? So the, the valuation process, in my opinion, is where you want to just get a baseline number. So that way you can start going down that road to the net proceeds. That's correct. And there's all kinds of strategies, you know, depending on what side of the transaction you're on. But there's the gross proceeds, kind of a number that's puffed up. And then we get to net proceeds, as you've mentioned, after tax or after consideration of all the obligations, liabilities, taxes, and what have you. What does a selling shareholder or the business owner have after all of these? And that's where you know there really is an art form in structuring the transaction. So, because I want to touch on how you can what what kind of art form that looks like and uh, the different scenarios. But when you're when you're specifically talking about valuations, and what are the different types? So, you know, we've got different professionals, whether it's a CPA or valuation specialist. There's a lot of different professionals that can do that. But when they're going in and the business owner gets a valuation, what are the different types of valuations that they can expect to see? Well, you know, when the introduction or in that introductory few minutes, we can have very formal determinations of valuation. So let me at least start with that because... Much of that vocabulary is fairly well known, and it's it's common vocabulary for the professionals. So there's the determination of fair market value, or FMV. That has great standing because those are tax-oriented assessments of value, tax-oriented for gifts, estates, ESOPs. And in many cases, that's the standard that's been adopted by the courts for divorces and shareholder disputes, those types of things. There's a lot of documentation that's out there. There's pronouncements by the Internal Revenue Service that indicate, you know, here's the approach, here's how you go about determining fair market value. 
but part of that definition assumes a hypothetical buyer and seller. Theory. <laughs> In theory. So we're solidly <laughs> on this muddy land of theory. <laughs> but then we go back to good empirical data, <clears throat> rates of return from public companies and financial buyers, and there's a lot of good empirical data that is used and then can be subject to review. So <clears throat> on and on and on, I won't prattle on with that, but there's a lot of data that can be used uh, from an empirical standpoint to derive a valuation, a valuation number or a range of value. Okay, that's the land of theory, and that's fair market value. <laughs> <laughs> now we move on to the more pragmatic. Um, so investment value would be the next item that I would introduce, investment value. Well, that's the value of a company or the value of an asset to a specific buyer. Everyone likes to think there's going to be a strategic buyer that's you know kind of uninformed, is pretty dumb, and is going to pay an outrageous <laughs> price. Well... That's not really the case. When we say investment value, typically it's the value of this asset to someone that's already in that industry. And then we have to look at and consider um, what is an overall consideration, kind of this gross consideration, but then that's going to be subject to terms. One of the things, now without prattling on too far here, um, one of the things is that who typically prepares all the documentation for a transaction? Well, it's the law firm or the attorney for the buyer. And the, uh, that attorney is going to be you know, an advocate for their client, and they're going to want to protect that client from the unknown, things that we can't see, um, contingent liabilities. So the documents are typically drafted in a manner to provide a wide, you know, real fluffy cushion for the buyer should something, you know, kind of crop out from underneath a rock or something. <laughs> there's a right of, there's going to be an offset here. So then, you know, we have earnouts and seller finance and management agreements and escrows that are built into the world of transactions. And that addresses the key point that you had talked about, Ryan. What are the net proceeds? Well, you know, the net proceeds, after we look at all these potential contingencies, could be much different than the original number that we're talking about. What's the value of the company before all, before all of this? In the world of transactions, you know, we always let them lick the candy, let them get the big number first. <laughs> <laughs> then the surprises, all the, all the deducts and contingencies and um, you're not getting in many cases that much cash at closing, yet you're surrendering control of the company. It's like to, the, Hansel, the Hansel and Gretel story where it's a little bit of a breadcrumb and there, there's the oven at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're enjoying this way too much, Ryan. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when, when you talked about this big space, when you're talking about the attorneys and the unknowns and the T's and C's, so... Okay, we've, we've got a valuation. Let's say that, that we're just a, this hypothetical scenario. We've got a valuation from some advisor or report or whatever it might be that gives us a gross number. And then from from our experience, you know, we were in a sales industry, so we're kind of bred to be 
on the negotiation playing field all the time. Sure. But I, I truly believe that a lot of business owners don't realize that all of this is negotiable. I mean, it's a, like a big, huge poker game. And the buyers are usually extremely sophisticated because they do multiple transactions and they know what they're looking for and why they should be discounting a company. And if you think about the example you talked about, the attorney, the attorneys, every attorney I've ever met are risk adverse. So they're going to throw in all these contingencies. What is your advice? What what have you seen through your uh, the companies that you've sold or the uh, experiences you've seen like how do how do you approach this negotiation standpoint well <clears throat> certainly professionals or practitioners that are well versed in the world of transactions they're really worth their weight in gold they're able to distance themselves from the emotion that business owners typically are invested in with the company, you know, their their company, especially if they founded the firm and they started in a garage or a basement, <clears throat> that, uh, you know, they're really not terribly objective about the firm. And, you know, if things are being said during negotiations, it's like, well, you're calling my kid ugly. <laughs> and, you know, you take that as a personal offense. <clears throat> and yet it's just part of the process and protocols. So having you know, a more collected, reasonable party representing you is tremendously important because there's always going to be some warts, uh, a couple of pimples, if you will, with every company. And those are going to be candidly brought out. They're going to be discussed. And you don't want someone, you don't want a business owner taking that personally. So um, typically in the sale of a company, some good advice for business owners, do not use the company attorney that was pretty good on, you know, sales contracts and maybe a little estate planning, but hasn't done any hard negotiations with asset or stock purchase agreements and contingencies and <clears throat> warrants and representations. Um, that really is, you know, turf for you know practice professionals that have a lot of experience in this. Certainly, that's our recommendation to business owners well I, I you that that for our listeners needs to hit home because we were we were a victim of that situation right well you know i don't know law i don't know accounting so we just use the people that we've always been doing business with and that doesn't mean that they do a lot of transactions and what i found is that being risk adverse from most of those professionals when they get the when you're going back and forth with the letter of intent of the purchase agreement and the buyer is telling you all these things that they want or don't want, the people that are not versed in this are going to take it more personally. I guess what I don't know exactly how to articulate that, but it's they they don't realize that the goal is to get the deal done. So there's got to be some give and take. Correct. There's <clears throat> there's a lot of splay, <clears throat> you know, and just because there's a Letter of intent, you know, it's not cast in stone. Literally everything's on the table. And if you feel strongly about one issue, there's probably some give and take on other items. Um, as you're going, uh, as we continue this conversation and we're, we're, we're migrating into like the net proceeds and what those, how those terms and conditions affect the net proceeds, can you uh, give our listeners a, a brief overview of how how that that Rubik's cube? I always refer to the Rubik's cube of a tax and the net proceeds because there's a lot of different classifications that can range from capital gains, ordinary income, and the different types of um, ways to structure it. 
Well, <clears throat> thank you for the, the lead-in. Generally, when a company is being transacted, there's <clears throat> two very common you know, structures. There's an asset sale and a stock sale. <clears throat> a stock sale is typically favored by the seller because with stock, almost certainly <clears throat> the extent to which there's any gain, it'll all be taxed as capital gain. <clears throat> and with stock, with a stock sale, the buyer is basically assuming any and all liabilities going forward because liabilities will attach <clears throat> to that stock. Uh, buyers, on the other hand, are hesitant. They don't want to buy stock in most cases, especially for most middle market closely held companies, they prefer what are called asset sales. <clears throat> With asset sales, they get to allocate the purchase price to assets that typically promise the highest return on capital. So allocating the purchase price <clears throat> to inventory, to receivables, um, that's very beneficial to the buyer <clears throat> and even allocating the price to depreciable assets, enormously beneficial to the buyer because they can get rapid cost recovery. Unfortunately for the seller <clears throat> with an asset sale, many of the items that you're selling are subject to ordinary income. And as such, depending on the state that you're in, the ordinary income rates, uh, the highest marginal federal and state rates can be very high <clears throat> in high state or high tax jurisdictions like California and New York, the highest marginal rates <clears throat> on ordinary income are at or over 50%. They're, you know, arguably They're taking half. They're taking half of your baby. <laughs> it's almost confiscatory. <laughs> well, <clears throat> well and, I, and I, you know, you're touching on a, a very important subject because that immediately puts the buyer and seller not not just on separate playing fields because it's a buyer, buyer and a seller, but you've got this massive tension about even how you want to code the overall purchase price between an asset sale and a, and, a, and a stock sale. Well, not only that, you know, when you get into the weeds a little further, you know, a business owner really needs to be thinking almost when they found the company, what's your exit? You know, we've had a couple of exceedingly unfortunate situations where the company remained as a C corporation, not an S. And as a C corporation, you know, the company's now for sale and someone's going to buy the assets. Well, there's a double tax situation with a C corporation taxes are first paid at the entity level. <clears throat> so the entire transaction's taxable to the company and there's no capital gain distinction. It's all ordinary income to a C corporation. Ouch. <laughs> Once there's a lot of cash in the C corporation, uh, to prevent a holding company designation, and there's penalties for that, the cash is then distributed to the owners in a distribution that is then taxed at capital gains. So the combination of the taxes can easily be over 50%. <clears throat> And it, it, which can completely derail the deal or be a, a massive, massive heartache when you realize that the tax bills do. Well, that plus <laughs> bad news for CPAs, <clears throat> one of the you know 
emerging areas of lawsuits against CPAs is failure to advise business owners to change from a C corporation to an S. Um, you know, year over year, it doesn't make much difference, but when you have the liquidity event because of the potential for double taxes, um, you know, and that's when we really have unhappy business owners. You know, they can't believe that the proceeds are just disappearing in front of them. Well, and, and you know, coming from our, our situation, you think it's that that's why having the right person at the table with you is the first most important piece because you need to make sure that you're relying on that person's expertise. I mean, that's it wasn't my job to know the tax brackets and the or not the tax brackets, the tax code and how to, to actually <coughs> use this Rubik's Cube of net proceeds to our benefit. And so you're relying on that person. And one of the things that I want to so you got the asset versus stock sale and the ordinary income versus the, the capital gains, but then. When you get into the realm of how and when you get your money, you get into these earnouts and promissory notes, consulting agreements. That all is a part of the net proceeds. So if you've got a $5 million net proceed nugget that you're trying to get out of an $8 million sale, you can you can, artic- or you can architect it with all these different types of deals. So you, can you elaborate on how that how those different things are classified and how to approach that when you're looking at the whole picture? Well, certainly. <clears throat> happy to at least provide some insights. <clears throat> when we're looking at a transaction, um, and by the way, a best practice for business owners is to you know, really understand that a successful transaction or transition, if you will, probably takes three to five years. You, know, you really need to be thinking a year or two at least in advance of a potential sale to groom the company to get it ready for you know the um, the fashion show, if you will, <laughs> um, where the attributes of the company will be championed, and you want the the company to be as favorably you know postured and positioned as possible. <clears throat> and that um, from the standpoint then of you know looking at net proceeds and how to at least try to strengthen your position, be aware of the fact that um, there's certainly going to be some terms that will be far more favorable to the to the buyer. So you want to have you know a strong you know attorney representing your interests so that um, the terms that are not favorable to you are at least blunted. You know, that if you're providing, you know, if you're extending credit through a seller note, um, typically the buyer wants to have that note secured only by the assets of the company. And you have to be really tough and say, no, there's going to be a personal guarantee on that note. Um, And or a specific pledge of additional assets to make sure that that note is good. As far as earnouts, I'm just providing a couple of examples. Yeah, I know, I like it. <clears throat> With earnouts, you know, business buyers will say, well, we think it's fair. You know, um, if the company is doing well after the transaction, <clears throat> we think it's appropriate. We think it's appropriate for the seller to participate in that future profitability. So they'll champion profitability. Yes, you can participate in that. Your earn out will provide or have provisions. 
but who determines the profitability going forward? <laughs> you know, it's the the buyer, and you know you're never going to know what corporate allocations and what overhead is or <laughs> how they've changed the cost structure. Now, I'm a, an old gnarly German CPA. I've, <laughs> I've done all this. <laughs> well, so, you, you, well, I was going to say, if there's an earnout, have it attached to something that's um, easily verified, like sales <laughs> right? And, and not profitability or net results. Well, and so a couple of things to elaborate on that too, because with an earnout, I I believe that, and from our experiences, that the well, I mean, why wouldn't the buyer want to have as much of the sales? So if you got a gross ten million dollar business, why wouldn't they push as much into that earnout as they possibly can? And again, this is where the give and takes come, give and give and take comes, right? Because that earnout, again, subject to their own control. So if you're the if you're the seller, you go and you sell to the the buyer and now you're quote unquote an employee like you said you don't know whether they're running their personal expenses through that that are dictating the profitability of your potential compensation plan so making sure that you can control whatever it is that you're being held to and then uh, making sure that you can get as you get as much of the earnout as icing on the cake and you get as cake and you get as much in a guaranteed or upfront fashion as you can well yeah, absolutely correct. And it even is such that with earnouts done properly, sometimes that earnout can attach to the initial transaction. It can be capital gain structured poorly. The earnout could just be ordinary income and taxable at ordinary income. You know the highest marginal rates there. So what? How do you? What are the differences of, that, of the, those two situations? <clears throat> well. Clearly, um, if there's an earnout and if it's a stock sale, there's you know much greater chance that the earnout will attach to the stock transaction, and then uh, likely be classified as capital gain. If it's an asset sale, then it depends on how the earnout would be allocated to uh, ordinary income assets like inventory and equipment, or perhaps some capital gain, be it um, goodwill, personal goodwill or corporate goodwill. Well, that specific example that you just talked about, that scenario, is where we ran into issues. And actually, our needle swung for net proceeds a very, very large amount because there was no thought behind the different allocations in an earnout promissory note and some other things. So you're talking (laughs) game changers for why you would have even done the sale had you not realized how, how... different those different classifications could be oh uh, very definitely and i've taught courses on asset or asset allocation pricing i called it uh, depreciation arbitrage you know the (laughs) the buyer has a vested interest in allocating as much as possible to those asset categories promising quick you know, uh, turnaround and recovery like inventory or uh, equipment that's in the facility. The last thing that the buyer wants to buy in most cases, they don't want a lot of goodwill because it's amortized over 15 years. Uh, they'd much rather amort- or they'd rather allocate to inventory that turns every 90 days or so. Um, so it can be a huge game changer under the category of more bad news. <laughs> 
when a company is sold, there's a tax form that's filed, and both parties should agree that you know they're consistent with the allocation of the purchase price to the assets, but they don't have to be perfectly you know uh, in alignment. Well, and this kind of just shows that if you don't know this game, then the buyer is going to be controlling most of the process and they're just going to be allocating things wherever they want, which could significantly change plus or minus 30% on your net proceeds. There's uh, absolutely correct. <clears throat> and um, in a lot of cases, you know, buyers will put in their offer to purchase that you agree to their you know, asset allocation, that's a stipulation, you know, and that's usually buried someplace. In the, <laughs> and you need to be very, very careful about that because, you know, they're allocating to asset categories, offering the highest recovery of costs. In most cases, it's ordinary income to the seller. You're right, that can be a tremendous game changer as far as net proceeds on the sale of a company. And another reason that you want to make sure your attorney is CPA is actually in the business of doing this. Like in our situation, I think we had our our business and employment attorney doing that. So this is not a 401k document. <laughs> this, is, right. this is a actual purchase agreement to sell our company. That, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean the parties are adversarial, but... <laughs> You know, it is an economic transaction, and the larger the transaction, you start approaching several millions of dollars. You know, shading this thing a couple percentage points, one way or the other, is you know real serious money. Yeah. Um, this it after we are you know talking about this net proceed topic, it I think it's a great lead into why you're doing what you're doing today because you found your world, uh, you found yourself in the world of ESOPs and. We've had another gentleman that we talked about the high level of ESOPs and uh, kind of the structure of it, but can you give us a little bit of a rundown on your story and how you ended up there and why you uh, have kind of ridden this wave? Well, certainly. And with most careers, there's always um, a large element of luck. I was a CFO for a manufacturing firm that had just gone through a leverage buyout. So this goes back many years into the 1980s. And the company used as part of the buyout consortium an employee stock ownership plan, an ESOP. Back then, hardly anyone knew about ESOPs, and I was thrust into this position of, yeah, I really need to know this. So we had several board members, outside board members. They were really outstanding. And so I went to Washington, the ESOP Association, and really, really got to know this inside and out. Uh, the company was enormously successful, migrating from a really not going anywhere, closely held manufacturing firm, a lot of injection molding, uh, to within about three, three years to world-class manufacturing. And, and there was a lot of cheerleading and a lot of engagement, a lot of employees um, were really you know, brought on board. We were championing the fact we're an employee-owned company. So that really made a big difference. It was a very autocratic company prior to the, you know, the transitioning. So I stayed with them for many years. They were good to me, but still a uh, serial entrepreneur <laughs> and uh, started Enterprise Services 
as a consulting firm, but almost immediately found the niche in ESOP consulting. Um, I was a CPA, and having come from industry and being a trustee for the for the ESOP at the company, and then riding this wonderful curve. I mean, the company quadrupled in size in a wow. very short period of time. Yeah, we. You know, by the way, cash flow is smoke and mirrors. We had no cash. <laughs> <laughs> We were just growing nicely, but it was all on borrowed money. Trust me. <laughs> but well, I sorry, I, I want to go. The, I want to go back to that man, after you finish your story. The oh, at any rate, found the stride, and um, I gained a, you know disfavor. I mean, I didn't like paying taxes, and the world of ESOPs is very tax incentive centric. So it was easy to champion uh, the employee ownership. So you know as. To go back, um, when I interrupt you, I apologize. The uh, when you said you quadrupled in size and you didn't have cash flow, but you were growing nicely. Explain when, when you're quadrupling in size and you're using borrowed money, how the tax incentives favor that situation. Well, back then it was doubly hard. We were a C corporation, so we still had exposure to taxes at the entity level, but because um, all of our acquisition debt was tax deductible, along with the interest. It just turns out that um, we didn't have exposure to taxes, even though you know we were growing. We were very profitable, but because of the growth, inventory and receivables and capital expenditures were just consuming the cash, especially when we were on such a rapid uh, growth curve. <clears throat> so we had lots of deductions, but the only way that we could really sustain the growth was with more debt. Got it. You know, as you you know found yourself specializing in the ESOPs, how does an ESOP affect the net proceeds of a business owner? So if you if you wanted to sell his company, um, in the last uh, the last interview I had around this topic, we we talked briefly on it, but you know because we've gotten into some of the more technical stuff already about net proceeds, how does it affect that whole situation with allocation in the in the transaction? Well, generally, uh, one of the huge pluses, and uh, there's a tax environment to the seller and to the buyer. Let me address the seller first. Uh, for most closely held companies in the middle market, most all those companies, I call them Main Street companies, so um, industrial distributors, professional service firms, manufacturing companies, construction companies, <clears throat> almost all of them are, if they sell at all, they will be asset sales, flat mm -hmm. out. <clears throat> the huge plus with an ESOP is that the ESOP by statute is only permitted to acquire the stock. Mm -hmm. uh, so to the selling uh, shareholder, at a minimum, it's going to be capital gain. And without getting into the weeds, there can be even a tax deferral on the capital gain if the right circumstances exist. So that's a huge plus for business owners. Another huge plus for business owners is that they are in control of the process. They decide how much stock would be sold, when it's going to be sold, <clears throat> and to a degree, you know, most of the terms. They don't determine the price that has to be negotiated by a trustee. 
But uh, that's a huge plus to the business owner. Again, they decide when the transaction is going to occur. You know, if, if it made sense to do a transaction on December 30th, it could be structured to do that. Hmm. When, you, when you have an independent third-party buyer, uh, such flexibility usually doesn't exist. You're on their timeline. <clears throat> for, the, for the buyer, for the ESOP, the tax benefits are almost you know, truly unbelievable. Um, most companies today are what we would call S corporations. And today, most companies thinking about an ESOP, they want to be 100% employee-owned. All the stock is owned by the ESOP. Well, why is that? Um, a 100% S corporation ESOP, and here's you know, the unbelievable fact, they're income tax-free. They pay literally no state or federal income taxes today, tomorrow, the next day, or ever. <laughs> Sounds pretty <laughs> <And> sweet. <laughs> it, you know, you know, this is an easy sell when you're in California and the highest marginal <laughs> rates are 52%. How does zero sound? <laughs> Keeping in mind, that's you know the, the company. But the short answer is that as corporations don't pay income taxes, none of them do, they're passed through entities for tax purposes, so the shareholders are going to get the tax hit. If the only shareholder is the Employee Stock Ownership Trust, it's a qualified plan under ERISA, the trust pays no income taxes. Now, the company will have a repurchase obligation long term. You know, as employees leave, we have to make a market for their stock, we, we redeem it, but we don't have any income tax liability whatsoever. And that is really a game changer. It means basically that all debt, any debt, you know, for buildings or for uh, the acquisitions or repayment of the acquisition debt, all the debt's repaid with pre-tax dollars. The rest of the world repays that same debt principle with after-tax dollars. Isn't that crazy? I mean, just think about what that does if you're trying to grow and acquire companies. I mean, you could technically pay a little bit more for a company to win the business or whatever it might be because you're paying significantly less for that company. Yeah, absolutely. You know, now if we had three more hours, I'd get into the weeds <laughs> and everyone's eyes would glaze over, you know, so we're not going there. But you're absolutely correct. What we found... With a lot of our clients, you know, we've done, we've been involved with now hundreds of ESOP companies. For the for these companies that are 100% employee owned, and you know if they've been an you know, an ESOP and employee owned company for you know eight ten years, virtually all the acquisition debts repaid. They're cash flow juggernauts. They really generate cash, even though there's a repurchase obligation. Um, their tax benefits you know, dwarf whatever obligations we have on the repurchase obligations. So uh, the companies are really in a position, if they would so choose, to diversify and uh, acquire other companies. I spent a lot of time in boardrooms explaining how companies can use their attributes, their tax attributes, to grow on a very tax-preferenced basis. I, I love it. So it one of the examples I'd like to hear your thoughts on the example that I give 
um, people because they're like, well, how is it possible with the taxes? And if you think about just like a normal company's 401k, it's all pre-tax, right? So all the, the matching, everything happens pre-tax because it's a retirement account. And then the employee, when they retire, they take their you know, a few hundred thousand dollars or a half a million, whatever it might be. And then they pay taxes as they use that money. And it's the same structure, correct? That's absolutely correct. And, you know, that's really consistent. Even with an corporation, the financial success of the company will be taxed to the shareholders or to the stakeholders once as ordinary income. And that's true even with an ESOP. The deferral could be many, many years, but when the distribution's made, you know, when the employee leaves and retires or um, leaves the employment of the company, the proceeds will be taxed as ordinary income as they're taken. Now, they can elect an annuity or they can roll it over and, and take distributions um, according to ERISA laws and the like, but ultimately, you're absolutely correct. It will be subject to ordinary income taxes. Ostensibly, if they're older and they're retired, the marginal income tax rate is probably much lower. So what what are the reasons that someone wouldn't do an ESOP? Well, ESOPs do come with a rule book. <laughs> you know, they're subject to oversight by both the Internal Revenue Service and the Department of Labor. One of the key issues is that even though the tax benefits are legion, you know, they're second to none, Certainly from the standpoint of the ESOP, um, it's really the Employee Stock Ownership Trust that owns the stock under you know, ERISA and the like that uh, the trust has to have a trustee and the trustee is subject to a very high standard of conduct, fiduciary responsibilities. So um, if, you know, if business owners are leery of having to live under a rule book, uh, then the ESOP may not be that attractive, even though there's some tremendous tax benefits. Well, it's interesting, too, because regardless, they probably have a 401k, which they've got a fiduciary responsibility to their employees anyways. So they're in in turn already have all these hats that they're wearing. It's just they're using their own company as a retirement plan, so you, they have to be a little bit more transparent with their own books. Well, there's another thing that's misunderstood in a lot of cases with ESOPs, that uh, the senior team, the successor senior team, can look at the ESOP and think, well, you know, we're doing all the heavy lifting here. We're doing all the managerial things. We're, you know, guiding the company. We're repaying the debt. And yet all we get is a salary and participation in the ESOP. Well, not really. In today's world, we want to provide some incentives for the senior team to grow the business and to um, stay with the company for a period of time. So uh, these employee-owned companies are very frequently matched with incentive programs and retention programs for the senior team. And it's fairly routine now where the senior team is granted uh, stock appreciation rights or phantom stock. So that's a carve-out of additional financial you know, gain to the senior team that really is tasked with making good things happen. You know, you real the ESOP companies have to be managed. Uh, it's not management by committee. You know, you need senior, you need a senior team that's in there. So uh, the senior team members 
can really be well and fairly compensated, even you know, even with an ESOP, even if um, the trust owns the stock of the company. I love it. We we could. I know you and I could go on for a long time because every one of these topics that we've talked about, you can go so far down into right. the. Well, and it, it's all important too because this is how you level the playing field, in my opinion, between the buyer and the seller. Because the business owner. Instead of winning the next customer or taking customer service calls, this is the business that they should be. I mean, it they should learn this because it significantly changes changes the game towards the end outcome. Um, how can our listeners get in touch with you, Scott? Uh, well, of course, the easiest way is um, Scott Miller and um, our company here is Enterprise Services Inc. Um, our phone number is two six two. Six four six six four nine zero, and then uh, an email address is s miller at uh, e s i hyphen enterprise dot com. If there's one thing that you'd leave our listeners with, what would it be? Well, I think that um, I'm assuming that so many of the business or so many of the listeners are business owners. Is that you know transitioning is a journey. Um, you know, it's not just, you know, the event, the actual date of closing and that the informed business owner understands it's a journey and realizes it's going to take some time and um, some very good strategic planning to have a successful outcome. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show, Scott. Well, thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. Uh-huh.